0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I find it um, funny when I'm talking to people and inviting them to church uh, to hear the questions they ask me about uh, the church, and it, it often reveals to me a lot about their church experience growing up, um, what what they were used to as a kid, if they had a past uh, in the church, and you know, some are looking to avoid that past, so they're asking certain questions, right, so that they don't find themselves back in, in a place that they don't want to be. Um, some are looking to reconnect with their past experience, and they're they're wanting to, to find, you know, what feels like home, so to speak. Um, and one thing I've been asked several times by people when they find out that I'm a pastor is... Um, Are you one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers? You ever heard that before about people looking for a hellfire brimstone preacher? Now, for the longest time, I didn't know how to answer that one. Um, Because I've seen a caricature, some of those those pastors, if you will, that um, they seem to take great joy in telling people they are going to hell. I don't know if you've ever met anybody like that, but they, they just enjoy it. It's like they, they're thankful every morning. They get to get up and not share the gospel, but to tell people that they're going to hell. And, and again, maybe you've met some of those people that just seem to delight in others' eternal damnation. Um, and so if that's what they had in mind, then the answer is no. That, that's not the kind of pastor I am or want to be. Um. And I remember sharing this dilemma with some other pastors and, and asked them if they had ever had this question posed to them and asked of them. And, um, and, and one of my pastor friends suggested that whenever somebody asks me that, that I should ask a follow-up question before I answer. And uh, his follow-up question was, do you mean a hellfire and brimstone preacher like Paul? Right? And so if, if they go, yes, then, then that, that tells you something about how much of the Bible they know. They, they probably know a lot more about hellfire and brimstone than they do about the Bible. Because, you know, out of 13, maybe 14 books, there's, you know, obviously some debate about Hebrews, whether Paul wrote that or not. But 13 for sure, 14 maybe, you can count on one hand how many times Paul talked about hell. Does that surprise you? 13, 14 books? And and really, three times specifically. And if you kind of give him some latitude of language, again, maybe one hand, you can count the times. It may also surprise you that Paul never used the word hell. Never once. And some people, they try to use that fact. I bring that up. Because some people try to use that fact to downplay what the Bible does teach about hell. And so I just, if you ever hear that opposition, well, you know, Paul never used the word. No, but he did talk about it, okay? He, he did. And we're, this, this passage that we're going to look at this morning is probably, out of the three or four times that he does talk about it, it's, it's the clearest teaching on the subject that we have. And before we get started, let me say there is no sin in admitting the difficulty in accepting what the Bible teaches about hell. It is a hard teaching. And for you to struggle with it and for you to admit that is not a sin. Um, John Stott commented he says, emotionally, I find the concept of hell intolerable. But he added, as a committed evangelical Christian, my question must be not what does my heart tells me, tell me, but what does the word of God say? And the biblical position of hell should impact our hearts as well as our minds this morning. And the biblical doctrine of hell should not lead us to revel in others' damnation. Instead, we should find ourselves experiencing the the tears shed by Jeremiah when he was preaching judgment on Israel or the brokenheartedness of Jesus when he called out, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, as he was lamenting over their unbelief in Matthew 23, 37. So with that all in mind, let's look at our text this morning. We'll read it together as a church. It's a relatively short one. We'll start in verse 5. Read along with me. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the eternal punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to break this text down into three sections. Um, The first section is going to be verses 5 through about 7a. And there I want to talk about the hope in suffering. The second section will be picking up there in verse 7 and going through verse 10, and I'm entitling that section, The Justice of Hell. And then finally, we'll end with Paul's normal way of always praying for you. So hope in suffering, the justice of hell, and always praying for you. Let's start with that hope in suffering. In verse 5, it says this, This evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. Now, it might seem at at first glance to the church in Thessalonica that these persecutions and, and trials deny rather than prove God's judgment is right. If they're just going by their circumstances, if they're just going by what's happening in their lives, they may think God's judgment is messed up because they're the ones receiving the trials. They're the ones receiving the persecution, not the unbelievers, not the people who don't gather and worship, not the people who love God, but the people who hate God. They are the ones that are persecuting the ones that do love God, that do worship God. But we should not understand the the evidence here that Paul is talking about to be the suffering itself. See, instead, it's, it's not the suffering, but it's the attitude of the Thessalonians in their troubles that Paul has in view. This is the evidence, the way in which they bear the suffering. And not only bear it, but they're growing. As we talked about last week, their their faith was exploding. Such faith and endurance could only come from the action of God within them. And that fact that God has inspired them suggests that they are destined to achieve the ultimate goal of entering into his kingdom. In other words, if, if he is empowering them now to be able to sustain and not only survive the persecution, but to thrive amidst the persecution. That that's evidence that they are going to see the kingdom of God. They're going to experience his glory with him. One theologian understood, understands the judgment here in, in these terms. The law of compensation by which the sufferers of this world shall rest hereafter. And the persecutors of this world shall suffer hereafter we see that in verse 6 and 7 and while this is certainly in mind the idea here is so much bigger than just one of just compensation it's the part of God's righteous judgment to use tribulations to bring his own people to perfection the point is not that just un- enduring under suffering makes us worthy of Christ's kingdom, but rather it reveals our membership in Christ's kingdom, which is by God's grace and through his faith that he grants us as believers. Beale wrote a, an interesting comment on the relationship here between faith and perseverance. He used the analogy of a ticket that grants Admission to a sporting event. Most of you have been to a sporting event of some kind or a concert of some kind. And we'll ask: is it the money that provides the access to the game or is it the ticket? And the answer is both. Ultimately, the money paid is what really gets you in. But you must have the ticket as evidence that you paid the price for the game. Now, it's not Christians who pay the price for their entry into heaven, but Jesus. He's the one who redeems us with his precious blood. He bought and paid for the ticket. The evidence of this payment, which is necessary for heaven as a ticket to a football game, is enduring faith that stands up under trial. Jesus paid for the ticket but we carry that ticket through our enduring faith as we stand up and face the trials and persecutions of life. This is why Paul urges the Thessalonians to rejoice in afflictions for Christ that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Paul's teaching on persecution should prompt a question for us. If tomorrow you woke up and the laws changed in our country and being a Christian became illegal so that every time we gathered together to worship, we risked being arrested and thrown into prison, how many people would be here next week? I mean, there can be little doubt that a lot of churches would see a steep decline. Especially those that attract numbers by means of worldly entertainment. Paul's teaching suggests that not all who profess Christ in times of ease will persevere under trials. He also asserts that those who do stand up for Christ, despite the suffering for the kingdom, receive a testimony that that they are saved and will inherit eternal life. So how can we find hope in this suffering that Paul is talking about this morning? Let me give you just four quick ways. First, it makes us long for heaven. When everything is easy, when everything is good, God's an afterthought. Praying is often an afterthought. Going to church is an afterthought. But when times get tough, when things become chronic and you don't see a hope for it getting better, which basically is everything after you turn 50, right? You you begin to long to look for something better. It makes us long for heaven. Second, it it stirs up our hope for Christ's return. Right? Even now, Lord, come. (laughs) Not in the the selfish way. I, I hear a lot of people use this in the selfish way, which is just, I'm in a jam, and that would be easy for me. Right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the longing for things that are wrong, the injustices that are happening to be made right. That this is far bigger than just me and Jesus come back for me because, you know, I got to do the laundry next week. Like I, this is this is, Lord, the world is broken. And I want to see it made right. Third, it destroys our longings for the things of this world. We. We spend so much of our time and so much of our life chasing after the things of this world and so little time thinking and chasing of the things of the world to come. Suffering reminds us that this is all temporary. Fourth, it teaches us to value the eternal life purchased by Jesus. That that ticket that we have for eternal life, we understand the value of, of Christ's suffering for us when we are suffering. Now, one way we can learn to value the eternal life that was purchased by Jesus is to understand the alternative. And that's exactly what Paul does here in verses the second half of 7 through 10. Here he explains the justice of hell. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, he says at the end of verse 7 there, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Now comparing Paul's writing here to a lot of Jewish apocalyptic literature, most famously the book of Revelation, Paul's language is mild in comparison to those apocalyptic type books. He he doesn't relish or dwell on descriptions of the damned or their pains but rather in essence describes their condition of eternal separation from God Paul wants to drive home the fact that that hell is being separated from God hell is a lot of other things but but here he wants us to understand and really zoom in and focus in on never experiencing the presence of God again. For, for Paul, hell is, is being shut out from the presence of the Lord. The, the final horror of sin is that it separates the sinner from God eternally. Just as it says in Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between me and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But unlike Isaiah, Paul sees this as an eternal separation, not just a temporary one. And these solemn words make clear the, the, the utter finality of the wicked. As Denny says, if there is any truth in Scripture at all, this is true, that those who stubbornly refuse to submit to the gospel and to love and obey Jesus Christ incur at the last advent an infinite and inseparable loss. They pass into a night on which no morning dawns. Now in this text, we, we again only have one aspect of Paul's teaching on hell, but it is, is one many people struggle with, namely the eternal aspect of hell. In Paul's teaching about God's wrath, we, we understand it in context of Romans 1. The apostle emphasized the, the way that sin is punished in this life is that God gives them up in Romans 1.28 to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So for Paul, as you continue to choose sin over God, God lets you keep choosing sin. He he just turns you over to whatever it is that you want, your desires. And here in in 2 Thessalonians, it it differs by focusing on the judgment that God will inflict when Christ returns. Or returns, and, and the life to come. So here we have the, some of the clearest teachings on the eternal punishment of hell. In other words, what began in Romans chapter 1 is just going to continue on for eternity. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. The point is that sinners who rejected God and his gospel in this life will face an afterlife of Unending punishment for their transgressions. Again, the Bible's teaching on hell is so shocking and terrifying that even a lot of devout Christians struggle to accept it. And this is especially true of the eternal nature of hell that Paul's talking about in our passage this morning. And there's a couple of ways that we have tried to avoid this idea of eternal damnation or eternal punishment. And I just want to take a side note for a minute here and just cover them in case you ever come across them so that you are aware of them. One attempt to avoid this doctrine of eternal punishment is called Christian universalism. Maybe you've seen a Christian universalist church. And and this teaching holds that while a holy God must punish sin and therefore there is some kind of punishment in the afterlife, the love of God will eventually win through that. Sooner or later, every last person is brought into the blessedness of heaven. This view was most recently advanced by Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins. Bell looks on the gracious character of God revealed in the Bible and asserts that the belief that given enough time, everybody will turn to God. These are... in his words given enough time everybody will turn to god and find themselves in the joy and peace of god's presence the love of god will melt every hard heart and even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to god so according to bell and others before him this is not a new heresy it's something that's been around for a while there are second chances after death So that many and perhaps all who have rejected Christ in this life will eventually escape hell in order to spend eternity in heaven. Now, the biggest problem with Christian universalism is the Bible. It's the Bible, right? Hebrews 9.27 rules out any second chances to believe the gospel after death. It is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. That, that's it. Jesus constantly pressed the need to believe on him in this life, telling the religious leaders that unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins in John eight twenty four, The urgent nature of Jesus's constant appeals would be pointless if dying in one's sin did not determine one's eternal state. Paul says in our passage that those who suffer eternal destruction are cast out forever, away from the presence of the Lord here in our passage. Paul is making it clear that these people will never enter heaven, but instead suffer a permanent isolation from the presence of God. Another way to deny the eternal nature of hell is is the teaching known as annihilationism. This theory holds that Paul's phrase, eternal destruction, means the complete eradication of the person. This interpretation is given to Jesus' warning that God can destroy both the body and soul in hell in Matthew 10, 28. Probably the most famous evangelical proponent of this view was, was John Stott in his early years. Um, He argued that these verses, um, destruction means means an extinction of being. He wrote, It would seem strange if people who are said to suffer destruction are in fact not destroyed. But like Christian Universalism, Annihilationism is unable to sustain the critique of the whole Bible. Despite its attempts to uh, take biblical imagery seriously, Since the apostles describe unbelievers as being eternally separated from God's presence, they must not have ceased to exist. The word that Paul uses in our passage to say that destruction is eternal is the same word that is used in the New Testament of eternal life, which I hope everyone understands to mean eternal. So... Eternal destruction and eternal life are actually opposites of of the same ultimate fate. We are going to live eternally somewhere, either with God, Paul says, or without. Some people attempt to minimize the the horror of hell by arguing that that fire is merely a symbol of, of hell's punishment. But that raises another question. What exactly is being symbolized in such a manner? I don't know about you, but of all the ways of getting dead, being burned up is not high on my list. I kind of want to avoid that one. So, So if that's the imagery being used, if it's not literal fire, what is it? And I would argue it's something even worse. James Montgomery Boyce writes that although the Bible uses imagery to portray the unimaginable, it does so precisely because the reality is unimaginable. That is the suffering of the wicked in hell is so intense and so terrible that it is not actual physical suffering by fire. Only such intense physical suffering can be used to describe whatever it actually is. The very terror of the Bible's description of hell should persuade us not to argue with God, but instead to fearfully run to him and believe what God has revealed to us about hell and his word so that we may turn to God and humbly seek at whatever cost to avoid this eternal suffering that he has warned us about in this place called hell. Finally, Paul turns back to prayer. <laughs> in verses 11, 12, to this end, we always pray for you. This is not a person who revels in the fact that people are eternally damned. Instead, he is praying for their salvation. He is praying for their continued perseverance in the midst of suffering because he cares for them. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for God and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God. And the Lord Jesus Christ. This, to this end statement, it's referring to this whole preceding section. Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians grows out of his thanksgiving for them. And his contemplation of the amazing, wonderful things that God has planned for them to come. The prayer is that they would grow in things spiritually and that this would would be expressed in in a, a variety of different ways, but ultimately it will come in the form of their eternal rest with God. No longer having to suffer under the persecution that they are experiencing at this time. I want to leave you this morning with two points of of, of application? How, how can we apply this passage to our life as a church this morning? Mm-hmm. The first is, to some, suffering such as uh, this young church was experiencing might be an indication that God was not with them. I In my head right now, I can hear certain people, and maybe you can too, that you've talked to in the past, that when bad things start to happen, when suffering and persecution begin to come, they say things like, what did I do to bring this on? Maybe maybe God doesn't love me after all. See, for, for so many of us, we, we have been programmed to think ease means blessing. The the lack of suffering means that God's hand is on us. But Paul didn't think so. The the way in which they grew in persecution, the the very fact of persecution itself, were to him clear indication of God's righteous judgment. That that is to say it was a, a clear sign of what God's judgment would be like. Right? God's judgment is eternal separation. A momentary trial and tribulation, even one that is chronic in the sense of your lifespan, is nothing in comparison to actual judgment, which is eternal separation from God. Because even in the midst of your chronic suffering, you can still experience the presence and joy of knowing God, even in the midst of that. Now, but ultimately to come with no threat of persecution. He always saw that their suffering was a sign that that in Christ, surely not in and of themselves, but that God considered them worthy to be included into his kingdom. Because they suffer for him, they would be called his citizens. After all, it was for that kingdom and and to further its mission that this church was suffering. That they were were experiencing the suffering. If they had not suffered under the kind of circumstances in which the congregation was born, there there, there might be a serious doubt about the genuineness of their faith. But how many of you think this way? How many of us think this way? I, I talk to a lot of Christians, and it's, it's probably like one out of ten that think this way. This morning we, we have to let the Bible change our thinking and views so that we conform more closely to what it says than how we feel. Because what I see out of nine out of ten Christians is I don't feel like God is blessing me. I don't feel like God is with me because things aren't going the way I think they should go. The Bible always indicates, as it does here, that the perseverance of the saints is an evidence of God's work in our life. And the way we persevere is through suffering and trials. First, we need to change the way we view suffering and trials in our lives. Second, While here on earth, where Jesus wept for sin, the the truth about hell should call us to a passionate witness of the gospel. How can we read of the terrors of hell, into which go all who do not know God, and do not obey the gospel. Verse 8. How can we read that and fail to do everything possible for them? To help them come to a saving knowledge of God's grace in Jesus Christ. How, how can we do that? How unloving must we be? How can we fail to pray for, for greater Heart for evangelism and for God's power to open the unbelieving heart, the unbeliever's heart, to which we speak. Then Claire Ferguson comments on this passage. He says, few things will clarify our vision of what it means to be ministers of the new covenant than to recognize with stark clarity that our great business in life is to pluck men and women and boys and girls from eternal damnation so that those who otherwise would have been eternally condemned before the majestic righteousness of God will shine like stars in the heavens and like jewels in the crowns of our own ministry. The reality of the terrifying nature of hell should drive us to love our neighbor and to share the good news of the gospel with them. Like I said in the beginning, we, we, we are not to be those people that delight in others' damnation, but instead we are brokenhearted and we spend our time investing in relationships to bring others to Christ we spend our time praying that God would soften their hearts and remove the barriers so that Christ can get in it should lead us to a heart of evangelism if it doesn't we need to think about our own salvation And what we're really putting our faith and trust in is that our own good works, that our own good behavior, or did Jesus pay for your ticket to get into the event? Let's pray, Father. We thank you so much for your word. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit even now would be convicting us Lord Lord put the faces of of people in our lives in our minds this morning that, that we need to pray for and that we need to share the gospel with Lord help us to be people who love and care for those around us with the ultimate love of the gospel. And Lord, help us to remember in the midst of sufferings and trials to know that, that we are being counted worthy when we persevere in our faith. When, when we just keep moving forward and we don't give up because things get tough. And because things are hard. But we continue to trust and lean into you and your provision more than our own provision. Help us to be a church like that. And Father, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that doesn't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, as verse 8 says, that is on their way to eternal destruction, God, I pray this morning they would turn to You instead. And they would come to know You as the Lord and Savior of their life. And Father, that this morning would be the morning that they would confess their sin and their need for a Savior And they will receive a free gift of the gospel. Father, no one in this room can leave here saying, I didn't know. God, I just pray that they would know you today. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.